Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi there, I'm Umanea and welcome to the Girl Chart Podcast. During the series, I'll be joined by some amazing guests and hearing all about their brand of brown girl magic. As well as sharing stories and discussions with the South Asian twist, we'll be getting stuck into the chart and the chat. I'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch on Instagram at girlcharts. Hi everybody, welcome back. Today I'm joined by Nisha Party, a BAFTA award-winning film producer who has worked on critically acclaimed films such as The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel and the BBC's The Boy With A Top Knot. She's also the lady responsible for bringing Harry Potter to the big screen. As well as producing much-loved films, Nisha also contributed to the success of international eyebrow brand Blink Brow Bar with the company's founder, her sister, Vanita Party. Today, we're going to speak to Nisha about her experience working on seminal movies, diversity in film, and about the importance of finding your own path in a very competitive industry. Hi, Nisha. Welcome. Hi. Very nice to be here. I'm going to set the scene. We're at my house and whenever we record at my house, the snacks are way better. <laughs> so we've got some pakoras and samosas. Which and is... really good pakoras, which you've made yourself. Thank so I'm you. very impressed. Thanks so much. My mum will be proud. <laughs> so this is all going to help us to get stuck into the chat. Great. I'd like to talk to you about your time working at Blink Brow Bar uh, with your sister, Vanita. I'm a fan. I'm in there every week. The struggle, the hairy struggle is real. <laughs> What's been the biggest lesson you learn building such a huge, successful brand? Oh, my God. I mean, I feel like I've learned so many lessons. I, I kind of went into that business slightly by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister had already set it up. And I had just left paid employment and was starting up my own film business. Mm -hmm. So she asked me to join her really to give her a hand. And 10 years later, I was still there kind of running the company with her, which was really good fun. And I think the biggest lesson really was that when I joined, there were a couple of brow bars and together we grew it to kind of 26 Mm -hmm. and also launched outside um, in New York. And so we went from working with a really small handful of girls who were like family, working in a, you know, with one desk in an estate agent's office, which was kind of our head (laughs) office, to having a big head office in Marylebone with 150 girls working for us, all of whom were Indian. That was, you know, that was kind of one of the most exciting things, really, was that we... We really gave a chance to a lot of women who had never worked in central London before, who didn't Mm -hmm. have much confidence, who often came from India, having had arranged marriages, and suddenly they were working in Selfridges, and their life had changed, and we'd really helped 
give them that and also the amount of people that we you know you know we meet we go to I mean the same with you you know I've met you for the first time today and you happen to go to Blink Brow Bar Um, from the start guys from the very beginning thank you (laughs) Um, and it's amazing you just go to parties or whatever and everyone's like oh my god you're Blink Brow Bar I get my eyebrows done it's amazing and just makes you feel great that you're able to make people's brows fabulous (laughs) so on to your film career which has been what you've been working on for the past few years yeah you set up party productions which is a production company yeah could you start by telling us what role a film producer plays in getting a film from a script to the big screen yeah I think most people have no idea what a producer does and um, I think we're the kind of least famous of the people that work in film no one's interested in producers which I think is a good thing um, but really, we're kind of a bit like the CEO of the film. Yeah. So it's my job to often find the idea for a film or find a book or read a newspaper article and then figure out how to make that idea into a film. Mm. So I will hire a writer. I will then need to go and find money to pay that writer. Um, and we will. I will develop a script with whoever ends up writing it. Um, often working with studios or the BBC or whoever is funding it. And then if we're lucky enough that that script is good enough that it goes into production, then it's my job to find the money to to make it happen, to do all the contracts, to hire the director, the cast, you know, (sighs) be on set, make sure it's running smoothly, make sure we don't go over budget, um, deliver it to the BBC as they require. And then once it's actually filmed, the director will go off and I will, it will be my job to publicise it and do the marketing and make sure it's released in cinemas or on the television or whatever it may be. So you're the only person really that's there from right from the start to the end. And, you know, I guess the nice thing is if it will, you know, if a film wins the best Oscar, I always say it's the producer that goes up to get that award, which kind of says it all, really. Why don't we hear more about film producers? Because... From you're the ones who are responsible for actually getting stuff made yeah. and actually it's pre-script it's a nugget or an idea from mm. yourself which makes this huge you know box office success yeah I think it's because what's happened now which is really awful is that there's so many producers on a film often okay. when you look at the credits you'll see you know often six exec producers and people have no idea who the who was the real producer that bought it to a lot of people buy producing credits so now if I'm trying to find find money, um, I might get some rich guy saying, well, we'll give you five million, but I want a producer credit. So often you get producer credits from people that have just financed a film, but they've not really creatively produced it. And they'll sit alongside the creative producer. And so we know who's produced it. But when you're watching a movie, you don't really know. The public wouldn't know. The public wouldn't really know. And I also see stars of films becoming exec producers. Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes they're brilliant, but often it's just a vanity credit that. Actually, if you want our huge star to be in it, then you need to give them a producer credit. And that's sort of, and they're kind of bought and sold a little bit and, yeah. and it's become a bit sullied and, and it's a real shame, but it's just the way the industry is and there's not much I can do about it. That's so fascinating. I didn't know. Your first producer role was on a film called Honour, which is about honour killings and tells the story of a British Pakistani couple who were trying to elope. Did your background as a British Asian influence how you told that story? Yeah, completely. So just to rewind slightly, I before I produced Donna and set up my production company, I was working in film for probably about 10 years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I really started out as a an intern yeah. for a film company and kind of worked my way up until I felt ready to set up a company. So when I produced Honor, when I set up my company, I was only looking for 
Asian stories. And the reason I set up my company really was I felt growing up, and I'm sure you felt this, although you're mm-hmm. younger than me, um, you know, I was never watching stories about me. And if there were Asians on television, it was always pretty stereotypical Asians uh, getting arranged marriages or driving a, ta- a taxi. or And I just felt like, actually, you know, I'm an intelligent middle-class Indian that's done quite well, and I never see myself on screen. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's so many stories that we have to tell, and they're just not told very well when they are told. So I set it out as a kind of total mission that I was just going to make interesting Asian films and TV drama that felt original and compelling and thought-provoking, but also were commercial and, and weren't just for the Asian audience, but were for an international audience. And that that's kind of stuck with me, and I'm still trying to do that. Yeah, and I think also they're told authentically, because obviously yeah. from your gaze as an Asian who, British Asian, you can kind of unpick a lot of things that perhaps somebody who's not wouldn't be able to to do. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting now, actually, because at the beginning when I was trying to make Asian stories, most people just thought no one's going to buy them, it wasn't cool, it was a real struggle. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm still pretty much the only female Indian producer in London. Yeah. Um, and now suddenly diversity has become this really cool thing. And so what I'm doing is is suddenly of interest to people, which is brilliant. Mm-hmm. But it also means that every British production company is now trying to hire all those Asian writers that I've been working with for years. Um, <laughs> Snapping them up. really cool and yeah. paying them much more money than I can. <laughs> and they're all making shows. Um, and, you know, what I have on my side is that I can convince those writers that I'm Indian too and I get it and I can make this drama authentic. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of British producers out there that, that can't do that because they just don't understand the world in the way that I do. Yeah. Um, so I'm hoping that gives me a kind of USP. Really. An edge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that's exactly why Girl Chart came to be, is because I feel like we've moved on from the last time discussions were, were kind of had in the media about what it's like to be British and Asian. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're always trying to tell stories of just such a, how diverse everybody is and all the different cool things that everyone's doing. It's just not arranged marriages. Like you said, it's, we've got new problems. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, I, it's funny cause my, I have a lot of Indian female friends and all of them so break the tradition of what an Asian woman should be. Yeah. Um, you know, whether they're worse working in an industry that's really unusual or, you know, they've become TV presenters or actors or directors or, you know, they've married outside their world or they're gay. Or, yeah. And I just think, you know, that's my world. And you never see that on screen or in the media at all. And that's really what I want to kind of try and do. But... Honour was a little bit different in that, you know, that was, God, probably about eight years ago Mm. now. And no one had really made an Asian-British thriller. So at that point, I really wanted to tell that story. And I felt like no one had really told the story of an honour killing in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. Um, Now I sort of look back and think, God, maybe, you know, that was actually also a bit of a stereotypical story that that I probably wouldn't want to tell now. Um, But at the time, it felt quite groundbreaking. I'm sure lots of our listeners, as soon as I said Harry Potter, they're like, what? Let's talk more about that. (laughs) Yeah, that's the only Um, thing anyone's ever interested in talking about. (laughs) As we mentioned in the intro, you're responsible for bringing, you know, those books to the big screen. Tell us, tell us us how it all began. So this was a while ago. I was in my 20s. It was one of my very first jobs in the industry. I 
uh, was the assistant to a film producer called David Heyman, mm-hmm. who'd come over from um, LA and he had a deal with Warner Brothers Studios. And it was our job um, to find books, scripts, ideas, writers that they would want to work mm-hmm. with. And a couple of years in, we really hadn't found that much, actually. We were kind of slightly struggling. And I think they were about to, you know, they were getting a little bored of us. And then one day, a unpublished manuscript came in from a from a woman called J.K. Rowling. None of us had heard of her. And her story was that, you know, she's just written this book. It's her first novel. She'd been writing it in a cafe. It was about to get published. So there was a publishing deal, but it hadn't been released yet. So there was absolutely no hype about the book. And at that point, no one was making children's films. It mm-hmm. just wasn't a cool thing. So David was really sceptical and was like, yeah, I don't really know if this is going to be good. Why don't you read it? And I would read all the stuff that he didn't want to read. So it sat on the shelf for a while. And then one day I took it home on the weekend. And normally I would take stuff home on the weekend and come back on Monday morning and just go, this is all really rubbish. You <laughs> toss don't want to, it. Yeah, toss yeah. it. It's not, we're going to make any of this. And then I read Harry Potter literally in one sitting because it was so brilliant. And I came back on Monday and it was the first time I think I was enthusiastic about something so his ears pricked up and he was like oh my god you actually like something (laughs) um and I told him the story and he was intrigued and I then wrote a report and sent it off to Warner Brothers so that they would read it and the rest was really history then and then he of course read it and loved it too and all the other production companies had received that book and they were all although I'll never admit it they were all turning it down because they didn't see didn't see what you yeah because I think in hindsight it's so easy to look back and go you know, how could you not think this was going to be a hit? But actually then there was no buzz about it. And so, but in my head, it was a film. As I read the book, I just saw it's a film in my head. And that's kind of why I thought it was. So you're kind of outside the box thinking, like also about children's films is the reason why you perhaps resonated, it resonated with you. Yeah, Um, I think so. Um, And also it was just brilliantly written and it was such a magical story. I mean, I mm. think she's an absolute genius and... And it was a really amazing journey to to have been on because, you know, our deal was sort of about to come up with Warner Brothers and we were all thinking, my God, and then suddenly (laughs) the fortunes turned and, you know, two months later we had kind of Steven Spielberg on the phone saying that he wanted to direct it and, you know, we were doing the casting process and I worked on the first film and and that was all really, you know, it's just really good fun. So surreal and one of the best stories I've ever heard. That's (laughs) brilliant, brilliant. So you worked on uh, The Philosopher's Stone. Yeah. Have you got like a key memory or a best memory of your time working working there? Other than that one that you just told us, which is pretty incredible. I don't know if there was a... Sp- I mean, there were lots of really great little stories. And, and I think, you know, work, working with... I mean, I just remember working with kind of Emma and Daniel or meeting them for the first time. And, you know, there were all these, you know, really sort of naive, innocent, lovely yeah. little kids. <laughs> and they're still all really lovely, actually. But... um. But just kind of watching it grow and become, you know, when, when, even when we optioned the book, I mean, you know, no one had any idea what was coming. And so we all just did our job and did what, you know, what, was, what we thought was good. And, and David did an amazing job as the producer of kind of making, because a lot of producers might have just not hired the right director or just not cast it well. Or, and one of Joe's big things was that, because the, the studio was quite interested in it becoming an American thing, obviously, and Joe was adamant that it was to be British mm-hmm. and that the cast were to be British. And that was one of the best decisions that, that everyone made together was, you know, it kept it here yeah. rather than become a kind of precocious American teen, which you know, <laughs> could have happened quite easily. Another in the wrong American hands. kids film. Yeah. It's so part of 
British culture now, Harry Potter, and how many kind of tourists come as well. And yeah, it's a huge, huge I know, thing. and like Harry Potter World is now this big thing. And yeah. I, I'm, so I, when you enter Harry Potter World, before you enter the world, you get given this, you get locked in a room and you have to watch the video of how the book became a film. I appear on the video and kind of tell my story. And so I get messages on Facebook from all these friends, literally that I haven't seen for 30 years that I went to school with, <laughs> who are like, I've just taken my kids to see Harry Potter and you're in it. Um, so I'm like, yeah. That is so um, So cool. it's just one of these stories that follows me around. But, you know, really, I would look, I was just doing my job. I, just, I read a book and I thought it was really good. And, but yeah, it's a good story to tell. That is amazing. I love that story. <laughs> There's no doubt that the movies are much loved and cherished by fans, like from all different backgrounds. But what are your thoughts about the criticisms of the films that they could have had more representation in terms of diversity? Um, look, I completely agree. And I've definitely mentioned it to David a couple of times. Yeah. But unfortunately, I was just a small pipsqueak in that very <laughs> big you know, machine then. And so I just didn't have the power or control to, to be able to change any of that, okay. which is why I'm making the films that I'm making. And I think what's really interesting is that if Harry Potter was made now I think it would be so much more diverse I think it was made at a time when actually there just wasn't much awareness there wasn't much need for it there was no public demand for it and all of that's changing yeah um but you know I think it's a total shame I mean it's a completely white movie I think you're right it is about the timings that even however long ago that was even though it doesn't feel that long ago things have changed so much discussions especially in terms of film sets and cast and crew it's very different what the focus is on now which is it's only it's a good thing yeah exactly there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So talking about diversity in films... Mm. You said about your time uh, producing Boy With A Top Knot that it was the brownest BBC production. 
um, both in front and behind the camera. How did you go about achieving it? And why was it so important for this particular film that you did that? Well, for me, when it got greenlit into production, which was amazing, uh, because really it was the first time that I felt the BBC had taken a risk on a drama that had a completely Asian cast, really, apart from one character, mm. and wasn't something that anyone had really seen before. And so it was. It, I felt a huge sense of responsibility that, A, this had to be really good, because if we didn't make it good, the BBC would just probably go, well, you know, well, we tried to make an Asian drama, no one watched yeah. it. It's a really good excuse to not make another one. So I felt like people needed to watch it, and also, you know, it needed to get good reviews and win awards, um... And for me, the most important thing was how to make it feel completely authentic. And it was a really tough job because ideally I would have hired an an Asian writer and an Asian director, but I really struggled because I also wanted to hire someone who was a really good writer who was able to tell that story well or adapt it from the book and a brilliant director. And I struggled with finding Indian directors that really came to me with a brilliant point of view. And I met pretty much all the Indian directors <laughs> out here. that and, and I just ended up hiring an, an English, uh, di- well, a Scottish director, actually. Um, and the reason that I hired her was because I just felt like she came to it with a completely different vision. But as a result, it meant that I felt I had to be on set every day and be the kind of brown eyes and ears. Yeah. And also, I was in the casting process, so I really wanted to make sure, for example, that, because I see this so much on, on TV, <laughs> that, that the Punjabi family was a were Punjabi. Yeah. And there wasn't a sort of, you know, an Arab son and a Muslim, you know, Pakistani child and a, and a Sri Lankan father and a... Just because they're all brown, they all look like they're a family. Because I can they tell. don't. They yeah. just don't. No. Um, so that was really important, just to have as many Punjabis on set as possible uh, it was really important to me to hire the parents who were Indian as opposed to in- English Indian yeah because what happens a lot again I think in drama is that English Asian actors are hired and then they have to put on an Indian accent oh to pretend they're from the accent and, yeah. and that just you can just see through it um so I, I that was one thing that I was really 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 it was really important to me and um, and then in terms of hiring the crew, again, really hard to find heads of department who are Asian in this mm-hmm. country. They don't exist. You don't find makeup designers or production designers or DOPs. They're just not at that level yet. Yeah. So what I did when I hired all the HODs was to say to them, you're going to get this job, but part of your job spec is that you have to have an Indian person on your team. And all of them went, oh, I just don't know any. I'm not going to be able to find any. And I really want to work with the team that I always work with. And I was like, that's the part, you know, that's the deal. If you take this job, that's the deal. So all of them very, you know, huffed and puffed, but reluctantly went off to find someone. And I often would help them and, you know, ask around, does anybody know any makeup artist who are Indian? Um, And, you know, we had to, I mean, our makeup artist that we found who was Indian was in Bristol. And we had to bring her up from Bristol to Birmingham because... We could only find one that was available. Mm. Really tough. But every single department had an Indian working in it. And so it felt like the cast weren't looking out at a crew that was completely white. And I think it made them feel at home. And it just meant there were observations from every department of... And it just felt like we were a bit a bit of a family. Um, so there were, you know, there were obviously lots of non-Indians working on that as well who were brilliant. 
But it just felt like, actually, in terms of finding, you know, cast and crew, it was it was the brownest drama that I think the BBC have ever made, and I'm really proud of that. Yeah, I think that's so incredible at the length as a producer that you went to to hire the people that you connected and clicked with, but also to make sure that there was the representation on set. Yeah, and it wasn't easy to do. But there are ways around it. And so I'm sure on bigger productions where there's even bigger budgets, there is a way of doing it. And so just to say there's nobody available yeah. doesn't ever really feel like a reasonable enough or No, and it's excuse. tough because, yeah. you know, I have to admit there were some sort of more junior members that I did hire on a bit of a punt just because they were Asian and they were really rubbish. <laughs> and, you know, you do think, oh, you know, I know there are people going, oh, you know, they've only been hired because yeah. a bit like, you know, he's only hired because he's the boss's son. Yeah, positive discrimination. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, you do have to be careful because, you know, and I would never work with those people again because they weren't very good at their jobs, mm-hmm. but I gave them a chance. So, you know, you've got to be Asian, but you've also got to be really, really good <laughs> if <laughs> yeah. you're going to get somewhere. So let's not know. just all start contacting yeah. Nisha for a gig. <laughs> exactly. really want to touch on why do you think still there aren't enough senior kind of makeup artists or set designers or other producers? Because I think a lot now we're third generation. Yeah. Why is it that people are still not going into those industries? Well, I'm older than you, so I'm second generation. But, I'm, um, I'm still, am I second? I don't know. I am second. But okay, then, you know, you the other, the ones who are younger yeah, than us, they're no, at working right. age yeah. now, which is depressing. And I think it's really changing amongst third generation. Yeah. But, you know, when I was at school and figuring out what to do, like every other Indian, I applied to medical school. I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, yeah. Actually, no, not through any parental pressure to just praise my parents for this. Um, <laughs> I really genuinely wanted to become a doctor. And the only reason I didn't was that I got a D in my physics A level. And I was so desperate to move out of the house and go and have some fun because my parents were quite strict. Yeah. That I just thought, I'm just going to go to university and do anything I can possibly do. The gateway um, to fun, university. Yeah. So yeah. I went to uni and I just did a science degree, random science degree. I found it so boring that I ended up directing, producing plays and, you know, doing other things. Oh, and thought, wow. Oh, actually, this is kind of fun. Maybe I should do this. Uh, and then I went to film school and that's what how that happened. But, you know, Asians were, and, and they still are encouraged to have, you know, proper jobs. And yeah. proper jobs are accountants, you know, being an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor. And, you know, my parents still don't understand what I do. <laughs> and when I have months of not really working in an office, when I'm developing scripts or coming up with ideas, they're like... Yeah. You're just you're not working <laughs> doing anything what are you doing and then you know there's three years between films and they're just like why does it take so long <laughs> yeah. so that you know they just they're still really I think they find it really difficult and also you know growing up I I didn't know anyone that worked in the film industry so I mean I literally because we wrote letters back in those days yeah I wrote too. I remember you know when I was at film school I wrote like a hundred letters to production companies to say can I just come and work for free and one person replied, um, and that was the agency that I ended up doing work experience in. And I arrived in that company, and probably 100 people there, and I was the only person of colour. And so, you know, I think I got accepted into that world because I speak like this. I went to a nice private school, mm-hmm. and I know how to talk to and assimilate with nice middle-class English people. Um, and so I settled in really easily and um, and then kind of slowly worked my way up. But I never really saw anyone like me. And I think that's changing. And I think for third generation kids, they're now going, oh, actually, you know, there are a few Asian actors out there. And, yeah. you know, I think in terms of directing and writing, there's some really brilliant new talent coming up now, which you know, even five years ago, I struggled to find. 
So it's it's a really exciting time. It's it's definitely um, changing. Like my t- my background's in television, and right. even on certain shows that I've worked in, like if I compare it to ten years ago, the crew and the talent is definitely a lot more diverse. And I mean that's an amazing thing. Obviously, more work to be done. Yeah. And I also think networks help when you're going into these industries. But if you don't have a network, because obviously there aren't might not be aunts and uncles who worked in the industry I think just being tenacious and just really you've got to and I think in the media and film industry you just have to keep those like letters are now emails or they're yeah. now whatsapps or dms they're just you still need to keep plugging yeah I'd and I say, think yeah. you know it's an incredibly competitive difficult industry to yeah. get into and I think you only really want to get into it if you absolutely love it yeah. and you know whereas actually becoming a doctor or an accountant there's a path and you go down that path and you know it's not that it's not easy but it's just it's kind of slightly more formulaic it's the path yeah yeah, and when you're trying to get into media or writing or you know there's no rules you just kind of have to make it work and carve your way through it and that's tough for people who haven't seen how you do that I think you've just got to have that fire in your belly and there are amazing people that do that but it's really hard and it's been really hard and I feel like actually I'm in my 40s now, but really, you know, it's taken me much longer than I thought it would take to get to this point. And obviously, I was slightly waylaid because I started running Blink for quite a long time. Um, But the only reason I started running Blink was because it was so impossible to earn a really decent living being a film producer, being an independent film producer, that I had to have a second job. Um, So that's, you know, that's another hazard of of what, what we do is that there's just no regular income. Yeah, and Asian parents don't like that. And they don't like that at all. <laughs> they didn't get it. So we're going to talk about Boy With A Top Knot, which is a game changer in terms of being a film that talks openly about mental health, mm-hmm. not just in British families, but also in particular South Asian families. Yeah. Can you explain briefly what the film's about? Sure. Well, it's based on the biography of Satnam Singhara, who's a very well-known journalist for The Times and also an absolutely brilliant, clever funny writer and human being um and um and his story really like many second generation Asians I think he got to a point in his life where he was slightly struggling with the person that he wanted to become Mm. and the person that his parents wanted him to become and those were two different people um he was going out with a white girl he was too afraid to tell his parents and coincidentally while he was struggling with this kind of internal battle he discovered that his father had schizophrenia Um, And so he sort of goes on this journey to discover what schizophrenia really is and how his whole family have known about it for years, but no one really had talked about it. And so it's really kind of him coming to terms with who he is and who his family is. And I guess that's kind of, it's quite a complicated story, but I think that's probably the easiest way to sum it up. I think you summed it up perfectly. I mean, I remember just reading the book and falling in love with his writing and also the story and and crying quite a few times Mm. throughout the process probably because it resonated with me so much you know as a second generation Indian who feels immensely proud of where I've come from and I love my parents but I don't want to have their life and I don't want to have the marriage that my mother's had which is you know an arranged marriage with a man that she didn't love and um, so I think most second generations completely relate to that struggle of respecting your parents and your culture but actually forging a life for yourself so that's what really resonated for me but also it was so beautifully written it's such a great story and I just felt like no one had expressed it in the way that he has ever 
and 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 you know I don't think there's there that many good Asian writers out there yet and and um yeah it just completely touched me so I had to fight quite hard to get that book a lot of people wanted it yeah I bet. um so I wooed and wooed him <laughs> and, it <laughs> and, it and it paid off I totally agree I think the film for me is so relatable but what what it did, which was amazing, was open up a conversation. So all the people I know who watched it, and I'm talking like my aunts and uncles, yeah. parents, opened up a very honest conversation about mental health, which needs to happen more. Yeah. But also it kind of named it. And uh, instead of sweeping stuff under the carpet, it was actually something that you could name, yeah. if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it? and, you know, I'm really proud of that because, you know, I'm sure we all grew up with a sort of uncle that was described as a bit funny or a bit yeah. strange. And actually, you know, they had mental health issues and yeah. they never had labels. They never went to the doctor. They were never put on medication. And, you know, I hope, certainly from the feedback that we've got from the film, mm. I feel like it's, you know, a lot of people have gone, oh my gosh, well, I, you know, I've been through that and I really want to talk about it with my family. And it's, I mean, the, the response was overwhelming, which has been really lovely, but it just ups the game. So like the next one's got to be even better, mm. which is kind of scary, but that's what I'm working on now, you know. Again, it transcended like every. It wasn't just Asian families watching it and relating. Yeah. It was everybody. Well, yeah, watching. I mean, we got we got consolidated kind of three million viewers on BBC Two, which was the highest rated drama that year on BBC Two. So it completely crossed over, yeah. and that's really exciting. And also, you know, lots of Asians that only watch ZTV and uh, watched BBC Two that night, and that's yeah. also really exciting. Everyone was talking about it on my family's WhatsApp, <laughs> Good. and also the cast were incredible. But I have to ask about what it was like to work with a legend, Anupam Kerr. Oh, he's amazing. Actually, both Deepthi and Anupam are amazing. And, and I, I grew up watching Deepthi on, in films and I just remember how brilliant she was and totally forgotten. Yeah. So we resurrected her from, from, you know, she was painting in the Himalayas when we found her. It's a good job and if we you can get it too. <laughs> um, and Anupam, I've always sort of been in touch with him for uh, on and off over the years because I've always wanted to work with him. Um, and we sent him the script and he loved it and happened to be what well, he made himself free. And, uh, and then he got nominated for a BAFTA. So it's all very exciting. But he was an absolute gentleman. Oh, I love him so much. I love Satnam as well. I'm always uh, speaking to him on Twitter as well. Right. Yeah, he's uh, brilliant he's on very, Twitter. Very he's funny on Twitter. Nisha, could you tell us what your latest project is? I've got lots of quite exciting things on the horizon but probably the the most exciting thing to talk about is I'm I'm working on another a longer term series with BBC which is about the partition of India Mm. um, because it's a story that I feel has never really been told properly on film or TV from both the British perspective but also the Indian perspective of what really happened what's really exciting is that um, Patrick Harbinson has just come on board to create that with me and he is the man behind ER and 24 and Homeland so he finishes Homeland this summer and then he's, he will start working on it with me. So we've got an amazing writer. Um, and then the plan is that we'll get an, uh, a writer's room, which will be Indian and Pakistani writers to work underneath him so that we have that kind of authenticity and then we'll start writing the series. So that's my big thing that will take up the next year or two of my life, I think. Oh, God, I'm so interested to watch that because, yeah. you know, we still have family members who talk about going through it and... yeah. I think as second or third generations, I don't think we really realise the impact of that and the transgenerational trauma, which we've talked about on the show before. Yeah, and you know, it's it's never taught in schools here, which I find insane because it's actually a part of British history. And when I speak to people about it, no one really knows what happened. And so I feel like it's a really important story to tell properly. 
amazing um Misha I could talk to you for hours we've had to kind of just go through everything quite quickly but what a fascinating insight into the film industry and into your career it's been brilliant so thank you it's been great to meet you you too thank Thank you for having me Thank you to our producer, Amanda. and thank you, also Amanda, listening quietly next door. <laughs> and thank you, listeners, for listening and joining us again. Please comment on our Instagram and Twitter, which is at girlchart. And I will speak to you all really soon. Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.